quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I just want to feel safe in my town again, and I, I don't feel safe right now. Did you shorten my life now? I want to retire and enjoy it. How are we going to enjoy it? You, you burned me. Not too much to ask, right? Yeah, quite a night last night here on CNN. That was a night filled with mixed emotions. Good morning, everyone. I'm Poppy Harlow alongside Don Lemon. Caitlin Collins is on assignment. She will be back with us tomorrow. Angry Ohio residents grilling officials about the toxic train disaster, but were the answers good enough? We will show you the key moments from CNN's town hall, just as Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is set to visit the crash scene just a few hours from now. A lot of people ask how we're doing. I'll be honest with you, not good, but we're doing the best we can as it hits us. That is uh, position I would, no one would ever want to be in, especially as a TV journalist. The reason he's feeling that way is because overnight, TV journalists there doing their jobs, even when they had to report the unthinkable, a deadly attack on one of their very own colleagues. What happened and who police now have in custody? And a powerful storm shifting to the east. 60 million people under winter alerts this morning. The area is bracing for snow and heavy winds. That's all ahead. But we do begin this morning with the toxic train disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. Frustration and criticism mounting over the government's response. And now the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is headed there today. He will be the highest ranking Biden administration official yet on the ground there just hours from now. We are expected to get some answers from federal investigators about why this train loaded with those chemicals derailed. This morning, the NTSB will release their preliminary report. CNN analysis of surveillance video found the train started really slowing down dramatically about 44 minutes before this crash. Sparks flying from a wheel that appeared to be overheating. So did the engineer realize something was wrong nearly an hour before this tragedy? More than two weeks after the huge chemical spill, families that live in that area are complaining of nosebleeds, rashes, and headaches. Emotions ran very high at CNN's town hall last night. Angry and concerned residents got a chance to confront Norfolk Southern's CEO and Ohio's governor on national television. Jason Carroll starts us off in East Palestine. Jason, good morning. And good morning to you. It was quite an evening. This was the moment that so many people here, Poppy, in East Palestine were waiting for. The chance to get down face to face, face up with these people, the uh, head of the uh, rail company, as well as state officials, and question them directly. And they did not hold back. Thank you for being here. An emotional two-hour CNN town hall, an opportunity for East Palestine residents to share their fears, concerns, and anger with those they hold responsible for a toxic train crash and the fallout. I'm angry. I'm angry about this. And it is disgusting that we're just lost it. 
I, I don't feel safe in this town now. You took it away from me. You took us away from us. But your company stinks. I hear you. Um, I'm terribly sorry that this has happened to this community. From payments to residents to cleanup operations, along with testing air, water, and soil, Norfolk Southern President and CEO Alan Shaw listed short-term and long-term commitments to East Palestine, but that did not stop the barrage of criticism. We could have been warned, and, and thank God that there were no casualties, no loss of life, no loss of buildings. I understand the anger, um, and I, I've experienced it. What I can do and what Norfolk Southern can do to help the recovery of this community. A community seemingly traumatized. It's Norfolk's disaster, not a train derailment. And unwilling to hide their feelings of unsafety. If you do not feel safe living in East Palestine, raise your hand. This has the potential to really decimate a small town like us. But the EPA administrator said there are guardrails in place to prevent that from happening. The orders are that uh, the company will comply uh, with our order, which compels them uh, to take full responsibility, full accountability for the trauma they've inflicted on this community and the damage that they've caused. Are you going to follow that order, sir? Jake, yes. Um, the Administrator Regan and I are aligned on this. However, this skepticism was palpable as those most affected fired back at Norfolk Southern and state officials in search of more reassuring answers. Whenever things are said like maybe, potentially, might be, this is a really serious issue. And the words like that should have no part in this. I've tried to be as, as, as honest and as straight as I, as I could. We told you when we had tested the water. What about we, the soil? We, we post the results of that. On the issue of soil testing, the Ohio EPA director had this to say. The process is to excavate everything that we know is contaminated, and then we test it to see how contaminated it is and where it needs to be lawfully disposed. The concerns now heightened as residents continue to report some health conditions, such as bleeding noses, rashes, and dizziness, affecting both adults and children. I'm having the skin issues, um, his is bloody noses. When I blew my nose, just the amount of blood that came out was uh, alarming. Fine. We're all sick now. And many facing a desperate reality for their hometown. Now, I'm 65 years old, a diabetic, AFib heart, heart disease, everything. Now, did you shorten my life now? I want to retire and enjoy it. How are we going to enjoy it? You, you burned me. And so many emotions running high here, Poppy. Also later this morning, the NTSB is expected to release its preliminary report on its investigation. Also, uh, as you mentioned, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will be here. In fact, in this very spot, he's been criticized for not showing up earlier, but he will be here today. Poppy. Uh, he has said lesson learned from that. Should have been there sooner. Jason Carroll, thank yeah. you very much. And you can imagine this could be anybody's Anyone. town. Anyone. Anyone's town. Mm -hmm. And I think this there's sort of the canary in the coal mine. This is a bigger issue that we're going to discuss later in the show. Yeah. But they're dealing with it now. Could be you next. And there's right. so many questions about this. Like, did the engineer know something was wrong with that train before it went off the rails and burst into an inferno? CNN analyzed surveillance video of the train as it headed toward the disaster. 
It appears that the train slowed down significantly in the 44 minutes leading up to the wreck, and you can clearly see sparks, there you go, right there, from the wheels that were flying as it continued to travel more than 20 miles. Let's bring in Tom Foreman now, break it all down. Tom, good morning to you. Good what do morning, you know? Don. What happened? Well, if you just look at the maps and the evidence, what you see is, is something here that is certainly alarming. Look at this first map. When it went through Alliance, when this train went through, it was traveling 49 miles per hour. That's based on calculations from when it left one town, when it arrived another. There's no other way to get there except by traveling that speed. You'll notice there it says a hot box detector. A hot box detector is a set of infrared indicators that point to the bottom of the train, and they're looking for axle bearings that are overheating. They would register that heat. From Alliance to Salem, the train was traveling in this 49-mile-an-hour speed. At Alliance, there was no sign of that sparking. By the time it got to Salem, which is 13 miles away in another hotbox detector, that's when we see this sudden, dramatic decrease in speed. It had been going 49 miles per hour, which was normal for this section of track, between 40 and 60 miles per hour, according to federal documents. And then suddenly at Salem, it drops by 20 miles, it goes to 29 miles per hour. 49 miles per hour to 29 miles per hour, and then it keeps going past this other hot box detector at this lower speed, which as you just showed there, Don, with sparks and flashes coming from underneath this car caught on security cameras, it keeps going for another 21 miles to East Palestine, where of course we have this calamity here. Those hot box detectors are going to be incredibly important here as they've been seized by federal investigators to look at uh, signatures coming off the bottom of this train that would tell them whether or not these bearings failed. Because when these bearings fail, that is a very serious thing. That's why they have hot box detectors. The question is going to be, if indeed that is the key to this, if those sparks coming off the bottom of the train and this dramatic slowing down happen, why did the train not simply stop to address it? Yeah. Don? Hey, Tom, I grew up uh, near railroad tracks, and I'm just wondering, sure. some places trains go slower than others because of mm -hmm. the areas that they're in, the conditions of the tracks, what have you. Um, do we know if that is the case, maybe where this train slowed down? I'm too early to tell. We know from federal documents that in that area, the Federal Railroad Authority um, documents from 2020 would show that the typical speed would have been 40 to 60 miles mm. an hour, not 29 miles per hour. And obviously, if you slow down that much, you're going to know you slowed down that much. Mm. The key question, why did you do it? If it wasn't this, what other reason did you have? That answers that. Tom Foreman, thank you very much. I appreciate you're it. You're welcome, Don. So we're going to be joined by East Palestine residents Jim Stewart and Ben Ratner, who were at the town hall last night. Were they satisfied with the answers from officials and what they want to see happen next? That's in just moments. Plus, Ohio Lieutenant Governor John Husted um, what is going to join us amid the government's response, so make sure you stay with us. Also new overnight, a tragedy in Florida. A nine-year-old girl and a television journalist among three people killed in a series of shootings there. Police say the reporter was actually covering the shooting of a young woman when that reporter was fatally shot. No one in our community, uh, not a mother, not a nine-year-old, and certainly not news professionals, should become the victim of gun violence in our community. A 19-year-old man has been charged with those murders. Our Leila Santiago joins us from Orlando. Absolutely tragic. And it, you know, reminds me of a TV journalist, Allison, who was killed, you know, several years ago doing her job as well. 
Right, something that we as journalists have certainly never forgotten. Poppy, I want to let you know that just in the last half hour, Spectrum News has now identified uh, the team members that were involved in this shooting spree, identifying 24-year-old Dylan Lyons and Jesse Walden. Uh, Dylan Lyons being the reporter that died from this shooting. They described him as motivated and a talented professional who was living his dream in Orlando, someone who clearly was very much loved, uh, even within the local news community with his competitors, if you just took a moment to watch some of their coverage of this last night. So let's back up and talk about exactly what led up to this and, and what an, what is still unanswered at this point. According to the sheriff here in Orange County, he says that around 11 a.m. yesterday, they received a call of a shooting. A woman in her 20s was killed. Then about five hours later, the sheriff says that the suspect returned and opened fire again, uh, shooting that news team, that Spectrum News 13 team, as well as a woman and her nine-year-old daughter in their home. That nine-year-old died. The photographer and the mother of the nine-year-old remain in critical condition this morning. That 19-year-old that you mentioned, Poppy, that is 19-year-old Keith Melvin Moses. He is in custody. And one of the things the sheriff mentioned was that he has a, a lengthy criminal history that includes gun charges. So uh, we will wait to find out exactly what the charges are today in court. Uh, in the meantime, though, a lot, a lot of strong feelings just being here at the hospital among the journalists who lost one of their own. Of course. And thank you, Layla, for bringing us the names of those killed and injured. We appreciate the reporting this morning. Let's talk more about the people who work with those journalists, this tragedy putting devastated journalists at Spectrum News 13 in a really unimaginable, unimaginable position. They are forced to mourn the sudden loss of a co-worker while continuing to do their jobs and bring the community the important information. As these reporters bravely tried to carry on last night, there were some moments where they could not deny their emotions. Watch this. When we got the call and immediately went to the scene there, a lot of people, of course, a lot of us still trying to wrap our head around all of this, a very difficult situation, a difficult day for our family at News 13, but we are doing the best that we can to bring you this information. A lot of people ask how we're doing. I'll be honest with you, not good, but we're doing the best we can as it hits us. And um, it's not just emotion, for a colleague, but as a parent, to say a nine-year-old's lost their life, it's not good. I apologize. This is really difficult uh, to cover. Um, it is very emotional here uh, at ORMC. It, it is nice to see all the media. We come together in solidarity in this moment. This is every reporter's absolutely worst nightmare we we go home at night afraid that something like this will occur and that that is what happened here that's one thing that was said by uh, the folks at spectrum 13 that that last reporter you just heard from is a, is from a competitor but of course in that moment everyone came together for them i don't think people um realize just how dangerous it is to be a local reporter. One of my things that when I was a local reporter for a long time and before coming to NBC and then here, 
is the one when I saw Adrian Broadus, right, just moments before we went to Adrian yesterday and she's standing on the side of the road. Yeah. I hated doing live shots on the side of highways because many people are killed. When I was in um, Birmingham, Alabama, someone was going to Talladega for uh, um, the auto race and they were changing a tire, died on the side of the road. And then moments later, I had to go and do a live shot on the side of the road so it made me uncomfortable. And so when I see reporters doing that, it's uncomfortable. I remember once when I was in Philadelphia, I rounded a corner with a cameraman and someone was shooting at someone running away in like just moments. And do you remember the helicopter crash here uh, for Channel 4 when they lost the, uh, when people were injured? And then when I was in, well, I wasn't in Philadelphia, but there was a weatherman who died in a helicopter crash and the whole city, the whole, you know, it was a Delaware Valley, mourned. And so local reporters put their lives on the line every day. People think about war zones and war reporters. But these folks in local towns all over America are putting themselves in harm's way every day to cover the news. And I think that they should be commended and people at home should realize that instead of, because they get a lot of criticism they do. Right, about what they do. And targeted, and targeted as well. We don't know the motive here, but you'll remember Alison Parker and her colleague yeah. just several years ago. And it's terrible. I can't imagine going on the air. I remember when our colleague Drew Griffin died and I was trying to, in the moment, and when it hits you when you're reading about it, it becomes real. And so for those folks, our hearts go out with you. We understand what you're dealing with, and we are really, really sorry. And I think network news, broadcast, uh, cable news, local, we're all with you and no standing question. for you. Yeah. We'll stand strong if you can't right now. No question. Yeah. We'll have much more on that. Yeah, ahead. and speaking of, doing their duties Job. now. Yeah, reporters. So we want to turn out to the weather as that powerful winter storm rolls through, bringing blizzard, snow, and icy conditions. More than 60 million people coast to coast are under winter alerts this morning. For some states, the coldest temperatures of the season, more than 850,000 people are left without power in places like Michigan, California, and Illinois. That really spans almost everything. And so far, 1,700 flights have been canceled. Delta and Southwest are among airlines most affected. The storm even causing more than 350 crashes in Utah. There are one, there's one fatality uh, reported so far. Did I read that right? I want to make sure. Is there only one fatality? Yeah, I believe yeah. so. In those. One fatality so far. So I want to bring in now Adrian Broadus. He's live for us in Bloomington, Minnesota. Good morning to you, Adrian. I'm glad that you are well off the highway and that you are being as safe as possible. So thank you very much. So now report uh, the weather conditions where you are, please. Oh, absolutely. But I can't ignore what you just said a moment ago, Don. We saw the highway yesterday, but for our viewers, we were safe in a parking lot after so many close calls as a local reporter. Not a risk I'm willing to take. But let's get right to this weather. Behind me, you see this crew clearing out the pathway for folks who do not have the luxury of staying home. They may have to come home and work here at the Mall of America or some of the restaurants that are inside. The snow is continuing to fall. Once we get past this dangerous area, it's going to be a lot of fun to go out and just play in the snow, maybe have a snow fight. But that's not the case right now. The roads, you can still see ice under the area where they've cleared, even on the highway, or I'm not going to call it a highway. The highway is just behind us, but on the stretch of roadway behind us. Here in the Twin Cities, at least 10 inches have fallen already. We saw that snow pick up overnight. But the snow isn't the only problem. It's the wind. There's a break in the wind right now, but earlier this morning it was whipping. It was hitting my face as the snow fell. And that's what people will experience when they're out on the road. The snow is falling. 
as long as that wind, that wind is also blowing with gusts of up to 30 to 45 miles per hour in some parts of the state, creating low visibility, Don and Poppy. Adrian, we're glad that you're safe and you're reporting to keep others safe as well. We'll check back with you. Thank you so much. So a college basketball player's attorney is pushing back on reporting that he allegedly supplied a gun in a deadly shooting. We'll talk about the details we know. Also this. Oh, I tell you what, I just heard a big bang right here behind me. I thought we shouldn't have done the live shot here. There are big explosions taking place in Kiev right now. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting having to relive that. I, I can't believe that was one year ago today. That was as Vladimir Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine. Still no end in sight as the bloody war enters its second year. So what's the U.S. strategy going forward? The former defense secretary, Mark Esper, is going to join us live to discuss that. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Standing lock him up and guilty at Alabama basketball player Brandon Miller after a law enforcement officer testified that Miller received a text to bring a gun to the scene of a shooting. This was last month, or Nick Valencia is with us. Good morning, Nick. Can you explain uh, what's going on here? Yeah, good morning, Pompey. Miller's attorney is trying to distance Miller as much as he can from this shooting, saying that Brandon Miller, that star guard on Alabama's basketball team, is fully cooperating with police. And he alleges that Brandon Miller was already on his way to pick up his former teammate, Darius Miles, when he got the text from Miles asking him to bring Miles his gun. Uh, Miles uh, is alleged to have left that gun in the back seat of Miller's car, concealed under some clothes. And police allege he then took that gun and handed it off to a third person, Michael Lynn Davis, who police say used that gun in the commission of a murder. Both of them are being uh, held in custody and charged uh, with murder. Here's part of what Miller's uh, attorney said in a statement, saying Brandon never touched the gun, was not involved in its exchange to Mr. Davis in any way, and never knew that illegal activity involving the gun would occur. Poppy? Nick, thank you. Obviously, we're waiting for many more answers, uh, but we'll stay on the story. Thanks for the reporting. You bet. So coming up on CNN this morning, an exclusive report from inside a Ukrainian city under fire by Russian forces for weeks. CNN is on the ground there. And the former defense secretary, Mark Esper, joins us live as a new year of Russia's war begins. Now to a CNN exclusive, we are getting a firsthand look inside the battered town of Vuladar, which is in southeastern Ukraine. This town has been hammered by Russian fire for weeks. And in the last couple of months, it has been the focus of Russia's destructive campaign. Our Alex Markart is on the ground. Watch this. This fight for Vulidar right now is one of the most important and difficult in the country. While the fight for Bakhmut is largely symbolic, this is a very strategic fight for both sides. Volidar is unique in that it sits at the intersection of the two main active fronts in Ukraine, the southern and the eastern front. That is why Russia wants to try to push through here to launch an offensive into Donbass. It is believed that this is one of their shaping operations, the beginning 
of a larger offensive to come in the next few weeks. But they are struggling very badly right now. They've lost a huge amount of men and armored vehicles as they try to cross open fields, including minefields, where the Ukrainians have been able to inflict a huge amount of damage on their troops. At the same time, the Russians are absolutely pummeling this town. You can see all around me, these are Soviet-era apartment blocks, now largely empty. The residents have fled and almost every single one destroyed in varying degrees. All of the windows have been blown out. Craters here in the ground where children used to play. Ukrainians have the benefit of the higher ground here and these buildings to use in the fighting. But as with so many of the battles here in eastern Ukraine, it is a fight of attrition. Who can hold out the longest? The Ukrainian side saying they need more ammunition to be able to keep the Russians at bay, to keep them from advancing. Alex Markord, CNN, Vulidar in eastern Ukraine. All right, Alex, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. So joining us now, the former defense secretary under President Trump, Mark Esper. Good morning, sir. Thank you so much. We appreciate you joining us here on CNN this morning. Good morning. Good to be with you all. So you say that the um, U.S. has the right strategy but needs an end game for Ukraine. What exactly should that be? Well, I think we need to follow, follow the lead of uh, President Zelensky, and his vision has been that uh, Russian forces would be uh, expelled from all of Ukraine, to include Crimea, as the first step. And I think that's what we need to uh, aim toward and support. Look, your reporter just talked about attrition warfare uh, in Ukraine. It's happening right now. It looks much like World War I. And at this point, if we don't give uh, Ukraine the means to really uh, take on a World War II-style counteroffensive, we could see this war grind on and on and end up in another frozen conflict like we see in other parts of, the, of Europe. We've been talking about this for a year now, about the public interest, especially here in the United States, and how do you, how do you keep that up? Because democracy uh, is at stake worldwide. There's a recent poll that shows that the majority of Americans support the U.S. continuing to give weapons to Ukraine. But that number is slipping. 48% are in favor today that versus, this was just in May, 60% of May of last year. So how do leaders keep up public support here? What has to be done? Well, first of all, uh, Vladimir Putin is counting on Western support to ultimately fail. And, and of course, uh, the Western uh, unity right now all hinges on American leadership. So I've argued that President Biden needs to come out more frequently and speak to the American people about what's at stake here. Put in a broader context, as, he's, as he did the other day, about uh, democracies versus autocracies in this world. And then take it down to the household level, the kitchen table where we can explain to the American people what it means to them or what it could mean to them if we don't help the Ukrainians. And look, the other part of this is it has gone on for 12 months. The Ukrainians constantly ask for more weapons, whether it's Stingers or HIMARS or Patriots or tanks now or F-16s. And we keep trickling these things out instead of just giving them what they need to fight and win and then allowing them to go on a counteroffensive that could really uh, finish off the Russians. Yeah. Another question that we have been talking a lot about is fighter jets and whether the, they should give fighter jets, um, that we should give fighter jets um, to the Ukrainians. Do you think the concern is that it would look like um, uh, an escalation, right, on the, on the part of the United States and that we were actually fighting the war? Do you think that is so? And should we give fighter jets to Ukraine? Unfortunately, that's been the White House theory for 12 months now. We've been self-deterred to the point of, again, disabling the Ukrainians from what we're doing. It seems like we're giving them just enough not to lose, 
but not enough to win. That's a question. That is a question. Do, Do we want Ukraine to win or not to lose? And that is a question that everyone is asking. In order to win, there are certain things that NATO may have to do that they don't necessarily want to do. Is that correct? Well, we we do want Ukraine to win because, again, Ukraine is fighting the first major fight of the 21st century when it comes to autocracies versus democracy. If we don't beat back the Russians now, it'll be another country somewhere else. And look, Beijing is watching as well. They are taking notes. They are trying to determine Western resolve, Western support. That's why I've argued also that we need to be delivering arms to Taiwan today. If we don't like fighting these wars, if we don't want to see a replay of what's happened the last 12 months, give the Taiwanese the means to defend themselves now so that China doesn't try to make a move on them in the coming years. All right. Well, speaking of, uh, Putin held talks uh, in Russia with China's top diplomat yesterday. Chinese President Xi Jinping also reportedly expected to travel to Moscow to meet with Putin soon. Plus, the secretary, uh, Secretary Blinken is warning China is considering sending lethal aid for Russia to use in the war. What are your concerns about the relationship between Russia and China? Well, it seems to be deepening, right? And my sense is that Xi Jinping thinks, believes that Vladimir Putin is losing, which of course he is. And he cannot afford, Xi Jinping that is, cannot afford to allow Russia to fail. And so, uh, look, China has been providing uh, uh, Russia with assistance, technical assistance. They've been buying Russian oil and gas. Uh, For them to make the next leap in terms of providing lethal military aid, uh, that would be dramatic, and it would it would prompt a uh, I would hope a large scale Western response that would include financial and economic sanctions. And when you really step back, what that means is the further decoupling between China and the West when it comes to our, our economic integration. Yeah, listen, I have to ask you about this, and wouldn't you know be doing a good interview if I didn't ask you about the Chinese spy balloon? You were on. You were talking about the Chinese spy balloon. This was just a few weeks ago, and we had the new image. Um, this morning, and we're talking about the China potentially getting involved, as you said, in the Ukraine invasion. Plus, we previously reported that the memo uh, where a top Air Force general warned of a potential conflict with China as soon as 2025. Are the American people fully aware of the threat from China, sir? No, I don't think so. I think they're rightly skeptical of China's intentions and ambitions. The Chinese have told us they want to dominate the Pacific by 2049, if not change the global order in their favor. But this is where I think uh, uh, President Biden needs to come out. He's talking the right themes in terms of autocracies versus democracies, but we have to hear it more frequently and we have to bring it again down to the household level and to explain to the American people what's at stake because it, look, it is gonna require some sacrifice if we are going to defend the global order as we know it now and our way of life and our, and our ideals of freedom and liberty and, and human rights. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, thank you. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you. And be sure to tune in to CNN tonight. Fareed Zakaria will host top Biden national security officials for a CNN town hall, Russia's invasion of Ukraine one year later. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Again, our thanks to Mark Esper. So pharmacies across the nation are running low on Adderall. What's behind the shortage and when could it ease up? Also ahead for us, the special counsel investigating Donald Trump is digging deeper into his inner circle, who they are eyeing now. This morning, people with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, are facing a critical Adderall shortage. This is forcing them to turn to other versions of the medication. What is troubling is that no one seems to know why. Our Elizabeth Cohen joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Elizabeth. I think we talked about this a few 
months ago. And is this just a continuation and exacerbation of that big problem? It is, Poppy. A couple of months ago when CNN said, hey, when is this going to end? We were told pretty shortly, and it hasn't. It's been going on for months. Folks are showing up at the pharmacy to fill their prescription for Adderall or a generic equivalent, and they're being told there just isn't any. One of those people is Clara Pitts, a high school senior in Utah. Clara Pitts is from a musical family. Let's go ahead, just this section right there. She studies hard at piano. I've been using this spreadsheet since 11th grade. A high school senior with a heavy load of AP and honors classes, Clara's dream to get accepted at nearby Brigham Young University. And these pills have helped a lot. Adderall, because Clara has ADHD. She started taking Adderall in the 10th grade. As soon as I got my medication, I started getting 100% on every test to the point where my teacher forgot later in the year that I'd ever struggled. She even won a National Merit Scholarship. I just forgot. But then a few months ago, just before exams, right when her BYU application was due, she got this text from her mom, Rebecca, who was at the pharmacy. There's some manufacturer shortage and they don't have any. I don't know what to do. Honestly, I'm just sitting here crying because I can't get you these meds. I spent several hours calling, I think, eight pharmacies. I felt really emotional about it in that first week or two that strangely like I had failed my child even though it wasn't my fault. It was hard to tell her and try to help her to understand we won't be getting this medication anytime soon. And I felt scared for what that would mean for her as a senior. Clara is one of many Americans impacted by recent widespread drug shortages of cancer drugs, antibiotics, pain medicines, and since last fall, Adderall. The FDA says one reason is that demand for Adderall has increased from 35.5 million prescriptions in 2019 to 45 million last year. Plus, some companies that make Adderall tell the FDA they've had shortages of an active ingredient or supply constraints. Another company just says other as a reason for limited supply. The FDA telling CNN, Manufacturers are working to meet the demand, and the FDA is helping with anything we can do to increase supply. The FDA doesn't give many details about what's gone wrong or how they're going to fix it, and experts who study drug shortages say that's part of the problem. I think transparency is extremely important. It's really difficult to be able to anticipate and let alone come up with meaningful solutions if you don't know what the problem is. This is the Clara did get a prescription for a different ADHD medication, but she says for her, it's not the same. In the meantime, her hard work at school has paid off. Rise and shout, Clara. I am happy to offer you admission to Brigham Young University. Acceptance at her first choice college. I'm going to be a cougar, Mom. Oh, I'm so glad. Thrilled, but still hoping to get Adderall to help her through it. Now, Adderall has something in common with many other drugs that are in shortage. It is not a terribly expensive medicine. This means the drug companies, relatively speaking, aren't making a ton of money off of this drug. Poppy? Hmm. That was fascinating. Yeah. Elizabeth, thank you. I hope they figure out a solution for people who really need it soon. Well, coming up, it's not a UFO and it's not a stray mine. What is that? Uh, well... I can't give it away. Honestly, no one, I don't want to say what it is, but this is this iron ball falling from the sky, washed up in Japan, 
Can officials or even Neil deGrasse Tyson figure it out? So he's going to join us. <laughs> President Biden back at the White House after his momentous trip to the war zone in Ukraine. But now he is facing multiple issues here at home, including the chemical disaster in Ohio and fury over a new and controversial immigration policy aimed at turning away migrants. Bringing now senior White House correspondent MJ Lee on the White House lawn this morning. Good morning, MJ. The president now uh, has to confront some pretty urgent issues now that he's back on U.S. soil. That's right, Don. You know, it has been a whirlwind 72 hours for the president first visiting a war zone in Ukraine and then his visit to Poland. But now that he is back home, he is confronting a number of serious domestic issues. First and foremost, there is the situation at the U.S. border. You know, earlier this week, we saw this very striking contrast and a split screen when he gave this speech in Warsaw, thanking Poland for taking in some one and a half million refugees from the war. Uh, he said Poland's generosity and their willingness to open their homes was extraordinary. But back at home here on the same day, just several hours later, the Biden administration announced one of its toughest policies yet to turn away migrants at the U.S. southern border and not allow them to seek asylum. Now, of course, the situation confronting refugees of war and asylum seekers coming to the U.S. are not going to be the same. But we are still generally talking about freedoms and protections for displaced people. And so that contrast and the timing of this announcement by the Biden administration while the president was abroad, that didn't go unnoticed by immigration and human rights activists and Democratic lawmakers as well. Uh, we can report this morning that they are extremely furious with the administration uh, for making this announcement, for feeling like they were blindsided, and for what they say has been a lack of engagement from this White House. Uh, this is a policy that they say is akin uh, to a controversial Trump-era policy. So all of this has been such a reminder of how the situation at the U.S. southern border has been a huge headache for the Biden administration. And Don, of course, as you mentioned, too, the situation in, in East Palestine, Ohio, that is a huge situation to watch for this administration. Of course, the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, is headed there today, but he is expected to face a lot of anger and questions about whether the administration took action too late. Right. Don. We'll be watching. MJ Lee at the White House. Thank you. MJ was just talking about what's happening in East Palestine, Ohio. Angry, frustrated residents there confronting officials about the train derailment that released toxic chemicals into their town. Two residents who were at our town hall last night will join us live on set. They're right there. Did they get the answers that they deserve? Plus this. Our daughter was told that she would have, she was going to get one too, that it was going to be a slave hanging from a tree and say that you're my favorite slave. Oof. A disturbing incident at an elementary school involving students handing out racist drawings for Black History Month. How the families and the school are reacting. Straight ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break. I'm trying to get my sports voice on. In sports this morning! <laughs> on the 50-yard line. Oh, it's not you can do a little better than that. A little better. Netflix has given us popular series on Formula One racing, tennis, and golf. Now the streaming giant is turning to football. The streaming platform is partnering with NFL Films for a docu-series titled Quarterback that will give viewers a behind-the-scenes look at three players, including Super Bowl 57 MVP Patrick Mahomes, or Mahomey. 
as I like to call him. Uh, the series will also feature Vikings QB Kirk Cousins and Marcus Mariota of the Falcons. Uh, Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions is producing the show along with Mahomes' newly formed 2 p.m. Productions quarterback is set to premiere later this summer. I'll watch it. Omaha, Omaha. Go. <laughs> That's a different one. <laughs> CNN This Morning continues right now. I'm angry. I'm angry about this. I've lived in East Palestine for 65 years now. I don't feel safe in this town now. You took it away from me. You took this away from us. Every right to be angry and to ask as many questions as they want. Absolutely. So good morning, everyone. Welcome. Caitlin is off. Anger, fear, frustration last night at last night's CNN Town Hall. A railroad CEO coming face to face with residents after a toxic train wreck unleashed a chemical disaster in their town. In just a moment, we're going to speak to those residents and Ohio's lieutenant governor. Plus, a TV journalist shot and killed while reporting at a murder scene, and we are learning about the shooting spree that left three people dead, including a child. And it appears the special counsel investigating Donald Trump is going deeper into his inner circle. But we are going to begin with the toxic train disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. The Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is heading to the scene today as criticism of the government's response mounts. Just hours from now, Federal investigators are set to release their preliminary report about why the train loaded with dangerous chemicals derailed and burst into an inferno. So CNN analyzed surveillance video of the train leading up to the wreck. Sparks flying from the wheels indicate that they may have been overheating and the train slowed down dramatically but kept going for more than 20 miles before going off the rails. It is raising the question, did the engineer realize something was wrong? Meantime, families in East Palestine are afraid to live in their own homes, in their own town. They're afraid to drink the water and breathe the air. So let's talk to them, right? Who better to hear from than the people experiencing this? The people who live in East Palestine, residents Jim Stewart and Ben Rhodes. You probably saw them last night on CNN's Town Hall, and they're with us this morning. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Both. I know you didn't get much sleep, but we appreciate (laughs) you getting up early with us. Jim, um, we were so struck by what you said last night in the town hall, directly speaking to Alan Shaw, the CEO of Norfolk Southern, and you said, did you shorten my life? Yeah. Real questions you have. Um, Let's play for everyone how he answered that. I hear you. Um, I'm terribly sorry that this has happened to this community. What I can do and what I will do is make it right. We're going to get the cleanup right. We're going to reimburse the citizens. We're going to invest in the long-term health of this community. I'm going to see this through, and we're going to be here. Was his answer satisfactory to you? Um, he, he just, I was turned off by him. I really was. Uh, he, he seems like a sincere man, and I said that to him, you know, that uh, he's probably a good family man, a good husband and everything, you know. I don't trust him. He's all big business. It's all about money. And it's, uh, you know, it's as fast as we were, they cleaned off those tracks, they were putting new ones right down. They weren't even picking the cars up and they were practically sliding them underneath. Mm. I mean, that's what it's all about, money. 
you know, they've since committed to removing those tracks, digging yeah. up all the soil underneath. Well, that's a new commitment that came yesterday. What do you need from him? If Alan's watching now, what do you what do you want? What would make you trust and feel um, a little more safe? Well, the soils are what I'm worried about. It's the grounds uh, and the air. Like I say, the water, they're working on it. They're doing, you know, everything they can for it. But with the, it's the air and the ground, you know, that worries me. You know, where, where's my grandchildren can't play in the backyard now? You know, what are we supposed to do? I, it, every day, when trains go by, it's blowing up the s- smoke and dirt and everything. And it's just, just redoing it. You got little grandkids. I have grandkids, yeah, yeah, I do. And like I said, he's just one year old and he's very active. Yeah, of course. Like, we know. Yeah, you know, and like know. I said to my little dog, you know, he's only got legs this high. You know, yeah. he's booting across that grass. <laughs> and but what, what about for you? Because you really pressed Governor Mike DeWine um, mm-hmm. and had him promise that he would stay there overnight to, for, to like, understand, mm-hmm. right, what it's like. Not just for one night, but I feel like the situation in general is being handled seems like more seriously by neighboring states. Uh, the governor of Pennsylvania put forth criminal charges yesterday. When is Ohio going to do that? And I feel like the narrative was controlled so much by the railroad company early on, uh, just leaning on their experts, leaning on their information, and that information didn't actually come out in a very forthcoming way, especially to the citizens. Uh, Secretary uh, Pete Buttigieg, the transportation sector, is going to go to East Palestine today, weeks after this happened, and he's conceded, look, it's, you know, Lesson learned, should have gone earlier. What can he do on the ground today that would actually help you guys? I think that for a lot of people, it's a little, no matter what happens right now, it's going to seem very late uh, on the federal response. This happened on the 3rd of February. So um, I think he's just going to have to really dig deep and find the right words to, Uh to soothe people's minds. Uh, one of the questions becomes, Ben, what about regulation now? There were some Obama-era regulations about trains carrying toxic chemicals that were rolled back by the Trump administration. But it looks like they wouldn't have applied to this train because of the chemicals it was carrying, how they're classified, and how long the train was. What do you think should change on that front? A lot of things. Uh, the way that the trains are labeled, hazardous or non-hazardous, uh, it needs to expand. And there's no way that this train should have been labeled. Vinyl chloride, a carcinogen, should be included. Exactly. Yeah, we should exactly. Read it. We should be yeah. able to just read it right off the train as it the goes through. The city should know what's coming through. And we should be getting reports yeah. from the train companies to, so we know what's coming through our town. The train was on fire for 43 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> what do you make of that? That's scary. You know, nobody did anything about it. And I, I it's... It was on from Sebring, Ohio, to us, basically. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's amazing. I, I just came into town and I seen the train go through and it's like, wow. <laughs> you got to do something. There's got to be communication some better with the trains, with our communities. You know, I don't know how we're hooked up with the systems, you know, but our police should have known it was coming. Our fire should have been on fire. Given a heads up. A heads you, up. You, almost an hour. Heads At up, least they saying had. something's coming this way with this issue. For, for both of you, quickly. Um, Ben, first, would it be helpful for President Biden to come? Because there are some who are criticizing him for not going. Or would that just be more of a photo op rather than meaningful change? I think the situation we really want to keep from becoming a political football. Um, I do feel like the president should visit. Should come. Um, I think that there's a lot of things uh, along the line before that that should have happened. And, you know, our, our state officials, state EPA... Things like that, they need to be a little bit more stout to the uh, railroad company. And I feel like that's a little bit more important and close to us. 
Should should Biden come? Oh, I, I definitely feel he should. He's he's our leader. You know, he's supposed to make decisions. He's supposed to make things right. Uh, he needs to be seen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's some of these people we haven't seen until now. Yeah. And like I say, him especially. Well, we see you. Yeah. We'll continue to stay there, tell your story. Thank you for last night and for this morning. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Good luck. Thank Keep you. us posted, okay? Yes. Okay, done. Let's go straight now to Ohio's Lieutenant Governor John Husted. Thank you for joining us this morning. Before we get to our questions, did you have anything you want to say to these two residents before we get started? Yeah, I'm very empathetic to their cause, and uh, the railroad needs to make it right. That's what I told the, the folks when I was there that they need to leave East Palestine better than they found it. Uh, the accident occurred on February the 3rd. It should be better than it was on February the 2nd. And state and local officials I know are gonna stay on top of this until that's right. Okay. So let me ask you about something that they talked about, Lieutenant Governor. Pennsylvania's Attorney General's office says that it will investigate this incident after a criminal referral from the state's Department of Environmental Protection. Does there need to be a criminal investigation in Ohio too? Well, I think once we get the report from the, the safety board that that information could be the basis for a criminal referral. And I, I would encourage our Ohio team to take a look at that as soon as we get a chance to see the facts surrounding the accident itself. Mr. Houston, you went to East Palestine this week. You drank tap water to ensure residents there that their water is safe. But we keep hearing from residents who say that they are continuing to experience symptoms that they say are due to the toxic chemicals. And even in places, you're saying that it's safe, right? But even in places they go, they said they're being served bottled water. So what do you say to these residents? Look, if you feel unsafe, you should drink bottled water. Uh, I I was there. Um, talk with the mayor, the fire chief, the police chief, all the first responders who are right there on the scene. Uh, the fire station's literally within a, within a stone's throw of the railroad itself. And, and they were concerned about misinformation about their water, so I chose to say, hey, let's, let's show people that uh, this has been tested and that we will drink it. But look, anytime you feel unsafe or uncertain about what's going on there, then I encourage people. Do, do what makes you feel comfortable. Drink bottled water if that's what you want to do. Uh, it's just what uh, Jim and Ben, I hate to put you on, on um, you know, short notice like this. Are you guys drinking bottled water? Would you drink the tap water there? Um, right now, we're mitigating our exposure to the tap water. But honestly, the biggest thing is the exposed groundwater. There's th- thousands of feet of groundwater. And if you're saying people are uncomfortable drinking the bottled water, or to drink bottled water, what are they supposed to shower in and wash dishes in? Uh, that's that's really concerning. Yeah. What do you say to that, Lieutenant Governor? Look, it's the EPA, the local community, the health department are testing that water. Um, look, Norfolk Southern should temporarily relocate people if they feel unsafe living in their homes. Uh, I think that the railroad should consider buying property of people who may not feel safe or or would want to relocate as a result of the spill. This is the railroad's responsibility, and it's up to the government officials at the federal, state, and local levels to hold them accountable and do right by the citizens of East Palestine. Listen, we're in the the now, but the immediate effects, I mean, the long-term effects, I should say, no one knows uh, at this moment. You can certainly understand that, and you can understand their feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
that's why they need to get the, the cleanup. We're in the cleanup phase right now, uh, and it needs to be done right. The U.S. EPA has sent an order, as uh, the director said on the town hall last night, and the railroad needs to live up to cleaning that up and be transparent about it. I know one of, one of your guests uh, this morning suggested last night that they, they show the video uh, that they record the video of the cleanup. I, I completely support that. They should be as open and transparent as possible about every step along the way if they want to build trust. Okay, well, let's hear now then from, you keep talking about Norfolk Southern. The CEO is Alan Shaw. He was at the town hall last night on CNN, and this is part of what he had to say. Watch this. I'm terribly sorry for what has happened to your community. I want you to know that Norfolk Southern is here and we're gonna stay here, and we're gonna make this right. We're gonna get the environmental cleanup right. We're gonna support the citizens of this community. We're gonna invest in the long-term health of this community, and we're gonna help this community thrive. You just said to me moments ago they should do everything they can to relocate residents and everything they can for these residents. Do you feel the company is doing everything it should be doing now to help residents of your state? Well, the, the mayor last night of East Palestine said that he thought that they were receiving everything they need, but that's up to the citizens of that community. I, just because 80% of them think it's going right, maybe there are 20% of them that don't, and whatever the needs are of those people who feel uncomfortable. And look, the community is, you know, the closer you live to that site, probably you feel a little more uncomfortable there. So I'm sure that there are some folks who live further away from the site that have a higher degree of confidence. If you live closer, it's a lower level of confidence. And, and if you need to be temporarily relocated or whatever services you need, Norfolk Southern should do that during this cleanup phase until they can reassure the citizens that everything has been done right. Uh, Jim Stewart is shaking his head in agreement when you were talking about the proximity of where you live. So Thank you, Lieutenant Governor, for joining us. And thank you, Jim and Ben, as well. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a nine-year-old girl this morning uh, and a television journalist are among three people killed in a series of shootings yesterday in Orlando. Police say the reporter was covering another shooting, the shooting of a young woman, when that reporter was fatally shot. No one in our community, uh, not a mother, not a nine-year-old, and certainly not news professionals, should become the victim of gun violence in our community. A 19-year-old man has been charged with murder right now. The motive is unclear. We are learning the name of that reporter, though. Spectrum News 13 has identified him as 24-year-old Dylan Lyons. You see his picture right there. He is remembered by his colleagues as a great friend, someone who took his job seriously and loved his career. The network also identified the other employee who was critically injured as Spectrum News photojournalist Jesse Walden. We will keep you posted, of course, on Jesse's condition. Just an awful, awful. Terrible. You're, you're right. That says it all. Terrible. Yeah, terrible. The special counsel investigating Donald Trump is making another big and aggressive move. The New York Times reports that he subpoenaed Trump's daughter, Ivanka, son-in-law, Jared Kushner. He wants him to testify before a federal grand jury. That's according to The Times. So let's bring in now Paula Reed. Good morning. And what do you know? Good morning, Don. Well, clearly no witnesses off limits for special counsel Jack Smith. And on the fact that he's subpoenaing this couple really suggests that the investigation is now deep 
into Trump's inner circle. And it's no surprise that he would want to talk to these two. Remember, Ivanka Trump was in the Oval Office on January 6th as her father was trying to pressure former Vice President Mike Pence not to certify the election results. And the couple both tried, as did other people, to get the former president to tell the rioters to go home. Now, both of them spoke to the House Select Committee during its investigation into January 6th, and clips from Ivanka's interview were played during the public hearings, uh, including her reaction when Bill Barr said, look, the election, it wasn't stolen. Let's take a listen. How did that affect your perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement? It affected my perspective. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, So I accepted what he was saying. And this news comes after we've learned the special counsel has also subpoenaed former Vice President Mike Pence and former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. So this all suggests that the investigation is likely entering a later phase. So are they going to cooperate, you think? It's likely, Don. I mean, they seem to be making an effort to rehabilitate uh, their reputations. They don't want to be lumped in with the Steve Bannons of the world being hostile to these investigations. But the former president can also try to assert executive privilege, right? They're not just family. They were also uh, members of the White House staff. So we'll see. We'll keep reporting it out. But it is likely that they're probably not going to just completely ignore or try to avoid uh, cooperating here. Well, that's true. You will keep reporting it out. Thank you, Paula Reed. (laughs) So sixth graders accused of making racist drawings and giving them to black students. Why parents are frustrated with the school's response. And we're going to take you to Ukraine. We're going to take you there live as Vladimir Putin's invasion enters its second bloody year. Christian Amanpour is in Kyiv. So this morning, parents with students at a California elementary school outraged, right, after their children were handed racist drawings from their classmates and the harassment hasn't stopped there. They also say that the school's response has been delayed and offered little information. CNN's Kyung Law live in Los Angeles with more this morning. Kyung, hello to you. Is the school taking any action here? Well, the school says that they are, the school district that is, Don, but the parents remain unconvinced. Yes, they are concerned about racism being directed at their children at this predominantly white school. But what they're more concerned about is their safety. They were uh, Black History Month cards. So one person gave her one and then the second child thought they could make a better one. Those cards came in crayon to her biracial daughter, Chloe, calling her my favorite monkey on another, a stick figure hanging from a tree and another titled my favorite cotton picker. Chloe is in the sixth grade. She knows she's black and really embraces her culture, but maybe felt that black is different. Because before, yeah, we are all, you know, black, Hispanic, white, but it was never in a way that she was made felt different. Or unsafe. Definitely unsafe. 
Marlene Reynoso's daughter is a student at Pepper Tree Elementary School in Upland, California, where she says racial bullying began with these cards, then continued verbally. But this wasn't happening just to her child. Our daughter was told that she would have, she was going to get one too, that it was going to be a slave hanging from a tree and say that you're my favorite slave. There's what I thought were clouds, but it says cotton. Like, it was very detailed, very specific. They're made out of yes, crayons. out of crayons. It's coming from somewhere. The parents. These are the, these are the parents of the kids that my kids go to school with. School board meetings across the country have increasingly become the setting for the nation's culture wars. But within school halls, the U.S. Government Accountability Office says race-related hate is a widespread problem. One in four students between age 12 to 18 reported seeing hate words or symbols on campus. And of the more than five million students who reported being bullied, one of four were targeted because of their race or identity. In Upland, a suburb nestled in the hills east of Los Angeles, the district superintendent said in a video response to the public that there will be no tolerance for racist behavior. Anyone engaging in hateful, racist, discriminatory, or otherwise bullying behaviors will be held accountable. It hurts. These are my babies. But the Douglas children remain at home. Chloe, who first got the cards, also has not returned to class. These parents, concerned for their children's safety after a lesson they never should have learned at school. They need to see now, and they're seeing it in a very harsh way. They're seeing it that not everyone is going to accept or be accepting of them for who they are. And we did reach out directly to the superintendent you saw in the story, as well as the assistant district superintendent. We did not hear back. The parents, Don and Poppy, will keep their children out of school until they're convinced that this bullying, because of the race, will end. Thank you, Kiyong. I appreciate that. You know, Poppy, this is why the full history of the country needs to be taught. Yeah. And we need to have a fulsome discussion about it, because then you can avoid situations like this. History is painful. It's not always good. And That's right. That's you have exactly kids, right. you know, they are, they are already learning this at five and six years old. And they can absorb things. Yes. That are. And we know, have hard, difficult, tough. important conversations at home. Yeah. So yeah. I'm glad Kyung did that. I'm trying to pick my jaw off the floor that this is happening. The kids in sixth grade are doing this to each other. Um, so ahead, uh, the Murdoch trial. Will Alex Murdoch take the stand in his double murder trial? And could his testimony hurt or help his case, our senior legal analyst, Laura Coates, up early to talk about all of this with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Later today, it is possible that we could hear from Alec Murdoch himself if he chooses to take the stand in his double murder trial. A source tells CNN he's deciding right now, weighing whether or not to testify in his own defense, a decision that is up to him. And only him. It's not up to his lawyers. He's accused of murdering his wife and son to cover up alleged financial crimes. Meantime, we've also heard crucial new testimony from Murdoch's friend and former law partner of 35 years. Let's talk about all of this with CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, Laura Coates. Hi, Laura. Hey, Don Lemon. <laughs> We were waiting for that. <laughs> and here it is. I'm here with my fellow Minnesotan as well, Poppy. What a morning. Hello, everyone. Yeah. What a morning. Yeah. I was waiting for that moment. Yeah. I missed that, <laughs> that moment. Um, okay, so this, I don't think people totally know that it's the, when someone decides to take the stand or not, 
The judge actually asked him if they declined to take the stand, was this your decision and your decision alone, not just, you know, your lawyers? So, gosh, you're a former prosecutor. What do you think? It's risky. It's, yeah. Well, let me tell you, as a prosecutor, I would be salivating at the thought of a defendant taking the stand, especially because there are so many holes that need to be closed on his part alone. Remember, there is the conversation around why there was a change of clothes between the Snapchat video captured by his son and the time he reported the two murders. There's conversations around cell phone data and the idea of his OnStar General Motors data, of where his car was going and when, conversations surrounding what he has said, in addition to, of course, the financial allegations that have been leveled against him. At the same token, though, you're absolutely right. It is the responsibility and really the decision solely on the defendant, him or herself, to say whether they want to take the stand. A big thing to think about, the Fifth Amendment, the idea of not having to testify because you might incriminate yourself. And given the loose ends that might be unraveling in this particular case, it might be prudent for him to think about whether he wants to open himself up to the scrutiny of that cross-examination. But I will say finally, listen, they asked the judge yesterday, could he take the fifth with respect to those financial crimes that have been alleged? And we'll see how the judge comes out on all those. Okay, Laura, uh, I, I read the book, but were you at one point ever a defense attorney? I was never. You mean okay. my New York Times bestselling book, yes. Just Pursuit? Thank you for mentioning that this morning. Oh, Just so, Pursuit, everyone. Oh, that one? Excuse me. The one that um, I read no, the galleys was, and gave you the, the review. I, but and listen, I loved you. Thank you. But let me ask no, you. No, I was it, never. So, well, you spent considerable time in a courtroom then. So what do you think, how do you think the defense attorney is reacting to this? What are, what are they or what might they be saying this morning? Well, listen, the prosecution has a pretty uphill battle. Not that the prosecution ever has to prove motive per se. They have to prove that the person has committed the crime according to the elements and meet their burden of proof. But the idea of motive is really looming in this courtroom like an elephant, like that, a 10,000 pound elephant, if you will, in the room of why. And the prosecution has chosen to try to suggest that they are looking to say that the defendant hoped for the distraction of financial crimes and a financial house of cards to take away from the scrutiny by committing these murders. Now, whether the jury will buy that is up to them, but the defense is pointing out a lot of the insufficiencies, a lot of the problems as it relates to the investigation, the idea of what happened when police officers came on the scene, what about securing the crime scene, and not actually you know, being able to go into the house or look into the house or have a delay from the time that the crimes were reported to the times that they actually investigated it. So the defense's strategy right now has been to say, this investigation, the team was inept. They don't have anything on our client, no direct evidence, a whole lot of circumstantial information, and a financial fraud crime trial within mm -hmm. a double homicide. So yeah. the jury has a lot to consider. And if Murdoch testifies, you guys, he might really make the case for the prosecution in ways that his defense does not want him to. Yeah, and that's why defense counsel asked to limit the scope of the questioning Yep. If he takes a stand and the judge was not buying that. Hey, Laura, we have to let you go. But before you go, we're just going to put up this. Can you put up this uh, full screen? This is a people, these high-profile trials of people who have actually taken the stand. And so there you go. Jody Arias, Ted Bundy, Charles Manson um, did not. Casey Anthony, O.J. Simpson, Andrew Yates, Derek Chauvin. So uh, it is a risky move. And Laura, we, we thank you for helping us get through this. Good to see you, and we'll see you tonight. 
No one wants to be on those lists, everyone. No, Thank no. you so much. Either side, <laughs> taking the Thanks stand Thanks, New York Times bestselling author and star CNN anchor. <laughs> See you soon. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I'll come back every day That's now. what happens you when so you much. come on the program. Bye, Laura Coates. <laughs> Bye, John Levin. Bye, Poppy Harlow. Bye, sweets. Um, it has been almost a year, right? A year marks... Mark is tomorrow since Russian forces moved into Ukraine and unleashed their violent assault. CNN has been there every day since the beginning of the war and prior. We are there this morning. Christiana Amanpour joins us live from Kiev. Also, Adrian Broadus is live braving the elements in Minnesota this morning. How are you feeling? How is it? Poppy, I mean, your hometown, Laura's hometown, I lived here for seven years. Hey, it's all good, but I want to show you this. The last hour, you could see my footprints. They're gone. That's how intense the snow is falling. Be careful, our, our photographer almost tripped there. We're going to show you the elements that we're braving right now, and we're going to tell you how long this will last. Oh. I tell you what, I just heard a big bang right here behind me. I thought we shouldn't have done the live shot here. There are big explosions taking place in Kiev right now. I think it's, I think it's relatively safe at the moment. Look, I've got a, oh, oh. I think we should too. So that was one year ago um, today. Actually, it'll be one year ago tonight. And as it unfolded, it was actually, I think it was like 1030. I forget the exact time. And it, we were live on the air. And I think it was, uh, I was doing a live shot with him. And I think Caitlin was on. And there was another person there. And we were just wow. in the middle of a discussion. And they said, and so it started to unfold. And we were going back and forth. If you need to be safe, what happened? He was standing in a roof in, in Kiev. And now here we are a year, year later. And it's happening. Little did we know. Uh, that Russia's assault on Ukraine would carry on for uh, a full 12 months. And now the country is bracing for a second year of that war. Our chief international correspondent, Christian Amapur, joins us live for, from Kiev. Christian, no one better to give us his perspective right. from Kiev one year after this war began. What are your thoughts, given that going into this, many thought that Kiev would fall within days, if not weeks? Well, I think that is the first huge reality check that we all need to really, really absorb and remember that this country has performed in an outstanding way that no one, not even their most informed allies, the United States, who had so much intelligence information, no one believed that Ukraine, either militarily or indeed in sense of, of people, would resist this uh, full-scale invasion. Because if you remember, what you were just showing was just the first, you know, first offense in what became a full-scale uh, invasion from Belarus to the north, from the south, from the Black Sea, from the east into eastern Ukraine, and then paratroopers landing quite close to Ukraine, sorry, to Kyiv, the capital, trying to storm and to surround the capital and, and, and maintain their, their power. None of it took hold. That is the most extraordinary thing. 
certainly around Kyiv. Within about a month, perhaps a month and a week, the Ukrainian forces had pushed those Russian columns back. They had pushed the Russian soldiers back. They had lifted the siege of Kyiv and they had revealed the most terrible crimes against humanity. And I use that term because that is now what the United States has formally accused Russia of, crimes against humanity. Now, this whole war has been by and large one against civilians. It has been a war in which Russia has tried to cow and to break this country by its perpetual attack on civilians and civilian infrastructure, despite the fact that there is trench warfare and, and that kind of, of warfare going on oh, in the East. Yeah. The most of it has been about, yeah, crushing civilians and they have not been crushed. Yeah. Hey, uh, Christian, let me ask you, because uh, a year ago after this started, uh, you were in, in uh, Kiev, and you were doing a show from there, and, and I was in Lviv, and you remember, like, every few minutes, those air raid sirens would go off, and there was no rest for the weary, and the folks had to deal with that over and over, and then, you know, bombs would rain down, and, you know, on, um, mm -hmm. on their homes and, and train stations and what have you. So compared today, what you're seeing in Kiev today compared to what you were seeing there a year ago, what is the difference? Is it similar? What's up? Mm -hmm. It's very different, actually. I actually arrived about a month after the beginning of the war, so I was able to see a city that was still under siege but was pushing back and that was resisting and that eventually, about a week later, we saw the siege broken. Russia was forced to retreat. But when we talk about air raid sirens, when we talk about, you know, full-scale attacks on this city like there were before and like there have been all through the fall as Russia stepped up its attack on civilian infrastructure, energy and all those other things that we've known about, trying to freeze and demoralize the population of this country over the winter, that has been less over the last few days. You don't want to tempt fate. You don't want to say what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. Um, obviously, the, the streets, uh, the city is not as full as it ever was before the war. People, though, are out and about. Restaurants, bars, the like. There's still a curfew, though. But businesses, to a great extent, are working. And, um, you know, People have just internalized the fact that they're at war, that yes, it's a grim anniversary. Uh, they know that over in the East, it's even worse where villages and, and people there are terrified of a so-called spring Russian offensive. Uh, and where there is almost World War I-like trench warfare going on around places like Bakhmud and elsewhere. But I think the, the big story is that, again, this time last year, essentially, while Ukraine had been trained and helped and supported by its NATO allies since the first invasion in 2014, it was nowhere near fully equipped to take on the resistance and the counteroffensives that they have. And over this last year, the Ukrainians have asked over and again for ever increasing, effective, high-tech, modern uh, defensive weaponry, and they have received it and they have used it uh, to great, great advantage. I think it's apropos that she's there. And we, I was talking about the air raid sirens and we're hearing church bells going off behind yeah, there. And she's saying, good... and I think it's a perfect way of putting it, Christian, you said they have internalized, they haven't gotten used to it, but they've internalized and accepted the fact that they are at war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Christian, Christian you're, you are chief international anchor, so it's appropriate that you're doing all of these big interviews, including this really telling one, I thought, there with the Polish president, uh, President Duda. And you asked him uh, a question about sort of how he sees Russia's role in Europe after this. What did you learn? Mm -hmm. 
Well, it was really interesting. Look, first of all, Poland is a frontline state. It is right there to the west of Ukraine, and they are, along with the Baltics, along with Moldova and others around the Ukrainian borders, very afraid, they certainly were very afraid last year, that Russia would, would, would swallow up Ukraine and then move on to them. Obviously, NATO said the not-one-inch famous slogan that if that happened, then the full weight of NATO counteroffense would come down on Russia. And so far, it has not happened. But the Eastern Europeans have stood up in support of Ukraine and in support of the international world order because they know what it's like when this is allowed to, you know, to, 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 to melt away. For instance, during the Soviet period, during the Cold War, who was gobbled up by the Soviet empire? It was Poland. Czechoslovakia at the time, Hungary, you know, Moldova, Romania, all those became part of the Warsaw Pact, which is why they chose to become members of NATO once they were free and independent. That is the story, and that is what they have been able to help Western Europe and the United States stiffen their resolve, and likewise the Baltic states, uh, to really defend this country. But don't let's forget that even though Russia has not been successful in this war, what it lacks in quality it has in quantity. Mm -hmm. It has at least three times more population than Ukraine. That means more ability to throw human beings at it if it's what Putin decides. And that is still, you know, we, we don't know where that's going to go and how that will lead. And what if, if at all, there is some great big spring offensive. So far, the US State Department under Secretary of State Victoria Newland has called their so-called, you know, spring offensive, quote, very pathetic. Mm. Our chief international correspondent, Christian Amanpour. Christian, thank you. Good to see you, uh, as always, and be safe. Thank you. So next hour, the NATO Secretary General, Jen Stoltenberg, is going to join us live right here on CNN. And tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, Fareed Zakari is going to host uh, top Biden national security <coughs> officials for a CNN town hall, Russia's invasion of Ukraine one year later. Also, let's take you to uh, East Palestine, Ohio, ahead, because the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is there. You see him now. That is him on the ground live as we're speaking at the site of that toxic train derailment, looking at damage, looking at cleanup efforts. We'll take you there in just minutes. Yeah, the, the NTSB is going to get their first oh, yeah, report, release their first reports today, and we'll give that to you. The, the Webb Telescope making a pretty remarkable discovery this morning as something strange washes up on a beach in Japan. What the heck is it? <laughs> What are we looking at here? Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson hopefully has some answers for us. Hi, Neil. We'll see you after the break. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, we went in the arc. Where did we dig that up from? Paris Hilton says stars are blind, but the stars are showing us something really groundbreaking this morning. Using the James Webb Space Telescope, astronomers have spotted six massive galaxies, and they date back to within 500 and 700 million years after the Big Bang. That's not all. They think this discovery could actually unravel what they long believed to be true about the origin of Galaxy. So joining us now to discuss astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. He is the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the Rose Center for Earth and Space. So good to have you, sir. Good morning to you. Yeah, th thanks for having me. Good morning. Good so morning. The James Webb Space Telescope has reportedly spotted galaxies dating even further back. So what, do you, what makes this discovery so surprising? Is it surprising to you? 
Well, there's this period of the early universe that we call the Dark Ages, where the matter and energy were there, but hadn't yet formed stars. And so they had to sort of coalesce, uh, undergo thermonuclear fusion in their core, turn on, gather into galaxies, and then sort of the, the, the universe begins with stars and galaxies as we come to know and love it. And in that gap, we don't really expect anything to be there. And these new objects appear to be in that gap. And so this would completely Force, force it to completely rethink what's going on back then. By the way, the James Webb Telescope was designed precisely for this purpose, to help us understand the origin of galaxies. So uh, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we're surprised to put that out there. <laughs> All right, you said rethink what's going on back there. So what are you, what's the rethinking? What are you thinking now, having, having gotten this new information? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, Wait, you're the astrophysicist I mean, <laughs> and you don't know? That's why we have you here, Neil deGrasse Tyson. No, the, the whole point of doing research on the frontier is you're stepping into places where no one has stepped before. Right. The whole concept of the James Webb Space Telescope was to see the universe the way no one, no previous telescope had ever seen it. So okay. some things you'll verify that you expect to be there, but you ex also expect to make discoveries that nobody ordered. And then, yeah, we gotta go in and say, what's going on? And, and yeah, there's nothing wrong with not knowing. Okay. This is part of how we live. All right, well, let me tell you, this is a, one of the co-authors of this study said, and this is in a statement and I quote here, it says, it turns out we found something so unexpected, it actually creates problems for science. It calls the whole picture of early galaxy formation into question. Uh, so again, so, go, go on. Just to be clear, okay, so, so let me reword that, okay? I respect how that's stated, but let me reword it. You discover something new, it doesn't create a problem so much as it creates excitement, a new understanding of the universe. We delight in this. It's not like we're all sitting back with our legs up on the table saying, basking in the knowledge of the universe that we have command over. No, we are always at the drawing board. And to people say, scientists will have to go back to the drawing board, we're always there. If you're an active research scientist, that's where you live. And you, you are befuddled daily. Plus, of course, the universe brims with mysteries. So, like I said, but, oh, by the way, we need better data. Uh, there's a whole other wave of data you can obtain on this, and that's spectra, where you take the light and analyze what comprises it. And from that, you can learn the, how fast it's moving, uh, where it is in the expansion model of the universe, oh what chemistry is going on in it. That's another layer of discoveries, which might tell us, no, we're misidentifying it in this stage of discovery. So a lot can happen. So just watch this space, literally and figuratively. And a lot is happening right now, especially with my sleep-deprived mind. I'm like, wait a minute, this is a lot in the morning, so I need another sip of coffee here. Okay, <laughs> let me ask you this. Everything that you're saying, sure. to be clear, we're not abandoning are we existing models about how galaxies form and evolve yet, right? Well, we, we, might, we might have to. Ah. Yeah, but that's okay. That's, that's okay. not a bad right. day. That's a great day for science, um, even when that happens. But we, so, so you don't want to jump to conclusions before you get even better data. Often on the frontier, um, uh, uh, conflicts and, and, and problems resolve once you get better data. And like I said, spectra is how we actually decode the universe. These pretty pictures, they're fine, 
But behind closed doors, we are analyzing spectra. And spectra is like the, the fingerprint of that object where you can identify the chemistry that's going on. As I said, the motion, is it rotating? What's comprising the light? How fast is it moving in the expansion of the universe? All of that is gonna come next. And at that point, we'll get a strong handle on what it is we're looking at. And we'll decide whether we have to keep scratching our heads or see if it fits into what was previously understood. Okay. <laughs> so listen. <laughs> Meanwhile. Oh, by the way, let me just, I, have, uh, what, I just have to give a shout out. To, uh, you know, we're celebrating the science that comes out of uh, James Webb, but engineers built this thing, all right? And we parked it a million miles from Earth, facing outward away from the sun. There's, and you, nobody ever interviews the engineers. And I just want to have to give them a shout out for what they accomplished to enable and empower the science that we dreamed up that we would be uh, discovering. And Shout so it's, out a, it's, a it's a complete to, collaboration. To engineers, I'm with you on that. Hey, uh, quickly yes. though, I wanna get to this, because we've been talking about this large metal um, mystery sphere um, washing up on a beach in Japan, according to BBC <laughs> it looks officials. Looks like an say, egg, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a threat, but also I have no idea what it is. Some theories floating around on the internet include Godzilla's egg. Okay, listen, I'm just saying these are theories because sometimes people don't understand that, and, I, and they think that wait, you're wait, just actually proposing this. Just to be clear, Einstein this. had I'm a not, theory yeah, it looks like a Einstein had theory. You have a hypothesis. Just make make, make a distinction. What is this okay. thing? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, why, why does oh everyone God. have to know everything at all times? <laughs> <laughs> why do we have you here? You've okay. said I don't egg. know about a lot of stuff, Mr. Astrophysicist. Be because because that's what discovery is. Okay. Discovery is what you're doing when you don't know what you're doing. You're on the edge, and so. Yeah, I, I, it could be a hoax. Somebody put it in the ocean and had it wash up. A, a Godzilla's egg, I love it. Yeah. Um, you know, don't, yeah. <laughs> don't poke it until Again. unless you're ready. Uh, so I, 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 I'd be delighted when we learn what it is. It's probably something prosaic, unfortunately. Uh, okay. All right. Well, it's a, but people's imaginations just run wild, and that's fun. That makes great fiction and side I, side fiction stories. But usually it's something less interesting right. than your imagination. I gotta run. I gotta run. Again, I'm not proposing that. I'm just saying what people are proposing. So don't get it twisted, as has happened to me. Before. I love. I, I, I want you. it to be Godzilla. Yeah. That'd yeah. be so fun. <laughs> Thank that you. That would be great. <laughs> okay. Good to see you. All right. You be be well and blessed, as they say, and have a great day. We'll see you here soon. Nilda Grass Tyson. That was amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Seeing in this morning continues right now. Good morning, everyone. It is. <laughs> We're laughing about the last segment. What is oh it? God. I don't know. Oh, boy. He was great, though. I loved him. Yeah. Um, we are so glad you're with us. It is 8 o'clock here in the East, 5 a.m. out west. Caitlin's on assignment. Yeah. Great interview coming up from her tomorrow. She'll be back with We've us then. Some serious stuff to talk about, though, right? Yes, we do, because an entire town still living in fear this morning, weeks after a train hauling dangerous chemicals crashed and burned. So last night, angry residents got the chance to confront the railroad CEO at a CNN town hall, right? I hope you watched, it was, a, it was fascinating. So coming up, the apology he gave them. We're also going to talk to environmental activist, Aaron Brockovich, who is on the ground helping residents in East Palestine. Also right now, a brutal coast-to-coast -coast winter storm ramping up across the nation. More than 70 million Americans on alert this morning. We'll take you live to Minnesota and uh, show you what is happening on the ground there, plus this. This is every reporter's 
absolutely worst nightmare. We, we go home at night afraid that something like this will occur. How awful a TV reporter shot and killed, his photojournalist wounded while they were reporting at a murder scene what we're learning about the suspected gunman. We'll have all of that straight ahead for you on CNN this morning. We are going to begin with the massive, toxic train disaster in Ohio. Right now, the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, is on the scene right there. You see pictures of him. Uh, this is him at the scene of that wreck where the train loaded with dangerous chemicals derailed and burst into an inferno. The government's response has been facing growing criticism. The railroad CEO coming face to face with angry residents during a CNN town hall. They are living in fear. They don't know if it is safe to live in their very own homes anymore. Here's what the, they told the CEO last night and apology he gave on national television as well. Since we've come home, my son has had um, bloody noses every day. Um, I've had some skin issues. I've had the symptoms, the sore throat, the irritated nose, the headaches. Um, I've been dizzy. We could have been warned. And, and thank God that there were no casualties, no loss of life, no loss of buildings. I'm angry. I'm angry about this. I've lived in East Palestine for 65 years now. That's my home. My grandmother came from Germany. She lived in Palestine. My dad grew up there. My family's grown up there now. And it is disgusting that we're just lost it. I'm terribly sorry for what has happened to your community. I want you to know that Norfolk Southern is here and we're gonna stay here. And we're gonna make this right. We're gonna get the environmental cleanup right. We're gonna support the citizens of this community. We're going to invest in the long-term health of this community. So while people in East Palestine, Ohio, are afraid for their lives, politicians are quibbling over who's to blame, if there's enough of a response, who's gone, who hasn't gone, when they went. Former President Trump is criticizing yeah. President Biden's response. We'll get we, to that in a moment. Because yeah, I want to get to the ground, and we want to show you that the um, Transportation Secretary um, is there, and that is Pete Buttigieg, and he is on the ground, uh, and on the same day that this report from the National Transportation State Safety Board is coming out. He's supposed to meet with the Hazard uh, Safety Administration there as well, meeting with officials on the ground. We have some live pictures. And they're going to be, he's going to get all of the questions, I would imagine, uh, that these officials in our town hall got here on CNN last night. What happened? Why does this continue to happen? Um, what safety precautions are you putting in place? Is it safe for us to live in our very own homes? Is it safe for us to drink uh, our water. These are live pictures. And you see, Poppy, look at that. That's part of the train. The, the wreckage still sitting there and the wreckage of people's lives really um, is what that symbolizes at this moment. You know, the, the residents of East Palestine that we had on earlier in the show um, are really worried about the soil and what's underneath the train. And now the company says they will remove the tracks yeah. eventually and all the soil. But you can see why. I would like to listen in. Let's hear what they're saying if we can. Yes, I do. So this car actually, it's kind of a hybrid. It's a one, one of the older 111s, but it was actually equipped with a head shield. 
just for whatever, whatever. Well, this was sort of up armored so, 111, even though it wasn't. Uh, it was an up it wasn't required, right? right? They referred to him as a 111S, even though there's not a DOT spec for it. I'm not sure why the builder built that. Uh, Do you happen to know how much of the fleet is still 111? Like how far along? Uh, I think I was talking to uh, some of my colleagues, and I believe there's the industry would need 35,000 new 117s to, to to be able to meet the phase out deadline of 2021. So I'm not sure the number of cars that are out there, but I have an That's understanding of how many. Yeah, there's 35. So the transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, as you can see, getting information from the experts there on the ground. They're talking about the type of train cars. It's a hybrid. It's old. It's a 111 um, S. And so those are the types of technical things that they are uh, going to be dealing with. And the folks on the ground who live there, the people who live there, they're not concerned about the technicalities. They want to know what the heck happened, and they want to know if they're going to be safe and if Norfolk Southern is going to rectify the situation and they're, um, the people who are in charge of them and their well-being, if they're going to take care of them. John Ablon uh, joining us uh, now, John. So the sec the Transportation Secretary is there. You know, there's been some criticism about the president not going or what have you, but um, this is the meat of, of what is happening. The politics sort of getting in the middle of all of this. So what yeah. do you make of the situation in the, you know, all of this here? You know, look, I, the petty politics that tried to divide people in the time of a natural disaster, industrial disaster like this, um, are small compared to the suffering of the people who live on the ground. My, my family is from Northeast Ohio. Yeah. And, and so I know this area. And, and this area has been long suffering. And this adds insult to injury. Um, I do think it's great that Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, is there. Probably should have taken three weeks for him to be there. Um, you know, he said, look, you know, some people just show up and it causes a distraction. That's true for a president, perhaps, but it's not true for a, a transportation secretary. FEMA was there on day one. EPA administrator's been there two times. This is ultimately Norfolk Southern's responsibility to clean up, but it really requires a bipartisan effort. We're seeing some outlines of that. Some of the enthusiasm of deregulating, uh, you know, the, the, the train industry, particularly uh, some of these trains that uh, transport harsh chemicals. Now there appears to be a bipartisan effort to revisit that. Maybe it's not about deregulation. It's more intelligent regulation. Mm -hmm. um, that's a step forward. But this is going to really require a sustained solution and real attention and not the kind of petty partisan politics. One of the things that I find striking and just sort of appropriate to talk about as we see the transportation sector on the ground, a guy from the Midwest in mm -hmm. the Midwest slash, you know, heading to the East Coast, whatever, however you qualify <laughs> Ohio in your book, but is that this is exactly... How, what the crux of Biden's economic focus has been. It has been on rebuilding the infrastructure of many uh, communities yeah. at, like this. Yeah. And, and, and so I just wonder what you think the Biden administration needs to do, whether it's the president going there or not, but what they actually have to do to maybe re-regulate or more intelligently regulate things that present a danger like this. Let's take that in two tracks, because you're exactly right. I mean, the core of Biden's economic policy is focusing on these areas that used to be known as the Rust Belt, but former manufacturing areas that had been proud and prosperous until a few decades ago, but have been in real hard times. And, you know, just because there's a division between Pennsylvania and Ohio right there in the Allegheny border, the communities are, are often very yes. similar. So don't focus on the red state, blue state here. Yeah. Um, it, it really is going to require, though, bipartisan coalitions to say we need to invest in these communities in a more sustainable basis. There's going to be need to be environmental cleanup and regulation around this. And I think there is a hopeful sign that there are some Republican senators um, who are economic populists who are saying, 
let's focus more on, on direct cash payments to families, something that would have been anathema under the old, old Republican Party. Let's focus on investing in these communities. Uh, you saw Senator J.D. Vance, whose book Kill Billy Elegy, talked about the plight of a lot of these communities. And, and, and you know, I don't want to put, you know, triumph of hope over experience here, but you'd like to think there could be some common ground in the basis uh, for bipartisan legislation to help these communities in a sustained way. So, you know, again, let's, you said the petty politics because, you know, the former president yep. is criticizing there are, you know, um, cons- not all conservatives, but there are conservatives who are criticizing the response from the, the transportation yep, sure. secretary and the president of the United States. But there are folks, even in conservative media, who are uh, pushing back on even something you said about the transportation um, secretary not going because it's happened in previous administrations, even in the Trump administration, and folks didn't go. Take a look at this. I, I completely reject the parallel that's been drawn between his going uh, to uh, Ukraine and not going so far, at least, to East Palestine. Let's remember this, Brett, about these issues. The federal government preeminently has the responsibility for our national defense. There's no private sector involvement in that except for the sense that they make weapons. There's no state and local government involvement in that. It is the federal government's job. So basically he's saying... Good for Brett Hume. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the criticizing Biden for being overseas in Ukraine on the, even the one-year anniversary and not being in Ohio is a total false equivalence. It's complete BS. Um, and, 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 you know, you can do both and you should do both. And Biden should go to that community. Um, but the preeminent responsibility is leading an international coalition to stop uh, Russian aggression and, and to, to, to try to undercut that under the auspices of America first and, and, and photo ops at McDonald's passing out branded water isn't, isn't a sufficient response. They want to draw the contrast, but it's a false contrast. It's a false choice. As you said, it's personal for you. Your family yeah. is from there and uh, you bring great perspective, John. Thank you. Let's see if there's Thanks, some action. Good to see, Good to see you. you. Thanks for jumping in and talking to the live pictures because we just got the secretary on the ground. That's what we do. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We're going to move on now and talk about what's happening. A coast-to-coast winter storm is making travel a nightmare on the roads and in the skies. Blizzard and icy conditions have canceled at least 750 flights nationwide this morning. More than 1,700 flights were canceled on Wednesday. At least 60 million people remain under winter weather alerts all across the United States. And more than 850,000 people have lost power across California, Illinois, and Michigan. In Utah, police have responded to at least 354 crashes in the past 24 hours. Adrian Broaddus joins us live in Bloomington, Minnesota. I'm getting all these pictures from folks at home. Parents trying to work, their kids are home from school. They thought it was going to be like 20 inches. What is it? Hey, it depends on what part of the state you're in, Poppy. I can tell you it's about 16 degrees here in Bloomington, but it feels like two. And with the wind, when it hits your face, at least for me, it feels like a tiny needle over to the right. You can see that crews have been working because all the snow that's falling has to go somewhere over there. There's a large mountain of snow. And once we get on the other side of this, that's something the kids, um, hopefully people will send you pictures that lead to Joy Poppy. We want to see some children out playing in it when it's safe. But when we were with you in the six o'clock hour, we had a nice clear path. Now I can't even see where my footprints were. I am going to go back to the location where I think 
I was standing earlier, I was right by this yield sign. Initially, it was at my calf. When I measured yesterday, it was about 11 inches. And now, keep in mind, this is a snow drift. I see 28 inches. So can you imagine if those snow drifts are like this on the roadways? That's why members of law enforcement are asking people to stay off of the interstate and stay off of the roads. We've seen plows come through here, but as the snowfall, there's just a fresh blanket once again. Don and Poppy. Yeah, and you know how it's coming down when it's sticking to Adrian's eyebrows and eyelashes. I've you look great, before. girl. <laughs> Thank you, Adrian. And you know who's going to figure it out right Thank away? Thank you. I'm You'd... warm, too. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, good. The airport there is so amazing. Yeah. At, they're going to be, like, up and running by tomorrow, no <laughs> doubt. No doubt. Um, look at this split screen. Okay. 16 degrees, as Adrian said, in Minneapolis. On the left of your screen, the right, that's Miami, 76 and sunny in South Florida. The northern Rockies and northern plains experiencing the record cold, while the southeast is setting record highs for the month of February. There's about a 100-degree temperature difference from the Rockies to the wow. south. Wow, look at that. The forecast uh, across cities in the south has it in the high 80s and 96 degrees in McAllen, Texas. Yeah. We appreciate all those lovely pictures from our affiliate WCCO and our affiliate WSBN. There you go. Uh, up next, the fallout over that derailed train in East Palestine continues. We'll talk to Erin Brockovich. She is there on the ground. She has been helping and speaking to the residents, talking about what their rights are in this mess. Also this. Subject is currently loose in the cabin, loose in the cabin, and he has tried to breach the cockpit. He's being somewhat restrained by the flight crew and other passengers. Yeah, frightening, and we all know why. It is just frightening. An American Airlines flight forced to divert after an unruly passenger charged the cockpit. What happened in the sky last night? More CNN this morning to come after the break. New this morning, an American Airlines flight was on its way to Washington, D.C. last night. It diverted to North Carolina because of an unruly passenger on board. Our Gabe Cohen joins us from Washington with more. Not just unruly, this is really scary. It is scary, Poppy, and we're learning a lot more about what officials think happened. So a source familiar with the investigation tells CNN that this 24-year-old woman, this unruly passenger, uh, was having what they believe was a panic attack. And the FAA says uh, during the incident, she ran at the flight deck. She didn't breach it, but it created enough of a scene that they diverted that plane to Raleigh-Durham. And the FAA even issued an eight-minute ground stop at the airport for what they say were security reasons. Take a listen to the police scanner traffic on the ground as all of this unfolded. Subject is currently loose in the cabin, loose in the cabin, and he has tried to breach the cockpit. He's being somewhat restrained by the flight crew and other passengers. As soon as that lands, we need to get in the plane and restrain this guy. The long gun crew is gonna be on the outside um, of the aircraft. They'll be standing by. Central VA advised is going to be uh, one black female subject in custody. 
Now, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg tweeted about the incident, saying this was a level four disruption, which is an attempted or actual breach of the flight deck. But at this point, this woman has not been charged with that. The FBI interviewed her, and so far she's only been arrested on a local misdemeanor charge of illegal airport obstruction. No federal charges at this point. But the FAA this morning uh, has been tweeting overnight, at least, about their strategy to fortify the flight deck for future flights, saying last year we made progress to require new planes to have a second barrier to the flight deck after the rule stalled under the previous administration. We are working quickly to issue the final rule. So what would that barrier look like, Poppy? It would likely be uh, some sort of gate or a a mesh wire panel, something like that, that would be pulled across the aisle of the plane in front of the first row. But it's important to note, it would only apply these changes to new aircraft. They would not be upgrading airplanes that are currently right. flying today. So not, not the majority of them. Uh, fascinating, but scary. It all happened. Gabe, thanks very much. And right now, the Transportation uh, Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, is on the ground in <laughs> East Palestine. There you see the pictures of him. We're going to talk to environmentalist Erin Brockovich about her and officials' efforts to help residents next. Right now, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is on the ground in East Palestine, Ohio. He is on the scene of the wreck where that train loaded with dangerous chemicals derailed and burst into flames. Let's bring in Erin Brockovich. She is an environmental activist who helped the people of Hinkley, California, you'll remember so well, win millions against PG&E over that toxic water caused by them in the 90s. Julia Roberts, of course, won the Oscar for playing her in the movie uh, her namesake movie. Aaron is in East Palestine helping the people there. You're a hero uh, to a lot of us, and you're, I think, going to be a hero to the people of East Palestine. So good morning and thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Can we talk about where you think, given all your experience, what you did in Hinkley and what you've done since? Um, where do you place this disaster in the larger context of disasters? Like one I've never seen. I've been doing this for 30 years now. And the lack of information that has not been given to these people, that they've been almost left here not knowing what's going on, where to go, what to do, who to turn to, their fear. I mean, all of it feels very remnant to me of what happened in Hinkley. And a community that uh, we're showing up pretty late to the game that's already been through a lot. And my biggest concern from day one has been the people Mm -hmm. and what it is they don't know, what it is we need to find out quickly for their health and safety. And they're still so uncertain about their safety and coming back to this town. You know, one of the the real issues and tragedies of Hinkley and the deaths there um, is the trust. They trusted the company you know, they trusted officials who just didn't tell them the truth. And and I, I wonder, do you believe when these people in East Palestine hear the EPA administrator, for example, told our colleague Sarah Seidner yesterday, the water has been tested, the air has been tested and coming back with no adverse health impact levels. That's a quote. Should the people of East Palestine trust that and drink the water? Well, as I said, you know, I really, I've seen the pictures with the water and I've shared before, you know, that is in a moment that the water is safe. That doesn't mean that's what the conditions will be tomorrow. 
And I think this is something that's really important. They had an acute, immediate exposure when they lit all those chemicals on fire. We've had all kinds of soot and chemicals rain out on them. And what happens in the water is a process that takes time. How this chemical will travel with the water, how long it will take to get to a municipality, to a well water, mm -hmm. those are two different conversations. So I feel it's a little bit misleading in a moment that almost, I don't want to say sensationalized, but in a moment where the water has yet to march out, that you can say it's safe, but you cannot give that assurance that that will yeah. be the condition tomorrow yeah. or a month from now or two months from yeah, now. Yeah, and I keep thinking about here in New York after 9-11 and the air and, and the impact years and years later on the first responders. Aaron, can you just listen to this from Jim Stewart, um, a Pal East Palestine resident who said this to the CEO of Norfolk Southern last night on CNN. Listen. Now, I'm 65 years old, a diabetic AFib hearts, heart disease, everything down. Did you shorten my life now? I want to retire and enjoy it. How are we going to enjoy it? You, you burned me. We were going to sell our house. Our value went poof. What, what recourse do these people deserve? Well, we'd be foolish to say that obviously Norfolk is going to get sued. I hear and feel that community member so much. And this is the biggest message of all. I mean, we can't just take a situation like this and everybody is gonna actually respond the same. You have autoimmune conditions, you have people who are sick, you have children, you have aging people. They will all metabolize these chemicals in a very different way. They've lost their homes. The first thing I would say, Norfolk Southern Railroad is not your friend. I find it extremely frustrating that they're there wanting to assure them everything is okay when in fact it wasn't. Look, I've had so many of the railroad workers reach out to me who were whistleblowers that they knew, they knew where these derailment sites were. They knew they have a corporate model that isn't working very well. It is profits over people. You're cutting your maintenance. You're not dealing with your infrastructure. You knew a disaster could like this could happen and it happened. And these people are suffering. What, what will become of their homes? What will become of their community? What is their future health care? This is very, very frightening to them. And so Norfolk, don't think you're my friend. I wouldn't trust you. I don't think this community should trust you. And obviously, you're going to get sued. Aaron Brockovich. We need to find help and restitution for these people. This is about these people and their future. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a voice for them very much, Aaron Brockovich, for us live in East Palestine. We appreciate it. Thank you. I think we can agree with her sentiments for that, Poppy. Um, as Putin's war on Ukraine nears the one-year mark, officials are bracing for a ramped-up Russian assault. The NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg joins us live to discuss next. you know who that is. Miley Cyrus, her new single, Flowers. It's Miley's first. It's Miley. 
It's Molly's first number one since uh, this smash hit. Watch. I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard in love. All I wanted was to break your walls. All you ever do So, of course, if you see Miley, then the next person you should see is Harry Inton, our senior data reporter. <laughs> Naturally. What, what's the number this morning? I, I, you know, you could think we were brother and sister, right? Okay. <laughs> this morning's number is five, because Miley Cyrus's flower on the Billboard Hot 100 has been at number one for five weeks consecutively. My goodness gracious. I had not even heard of this song, but then all of a sudden, all these stories started appealing. I couldn't ignore it. And... But it's not just traditional sort of metrics that tell you how big this song is. Take a look at the Spotify records for Flowers and Miley Cyrus. It's the fastest song ever to 100 million streams. It was the most streams. It's the most streamed song ever in a week at 115 million. And Miley Cyrus is the woman with the most monthly listeners ever on Spotify at 85 million. So a great hit for Miley Cyrus and also for her song Flowers. But I got one for Don here because I really wanted to make this comparison because I know uh, Don loves Uncle Neil. And to me, there's actually a comparison but to isn't be made. he actually your uncle? Yes. Neil Sedaka is actually my uncle. That. Don and I have spoken about this many times. It's hard to do. They didn't now do Laughter in the Rain or... It's true. It's both of these songs. It's Breaking Up is Hard to Do and Laughter in the Rain. Look at Miley Cyrus and Uncle Neil. Top of the billboard... Uh, Hot 100 by year of release. Their first number one hit, 2013 for Cyrus with Wrecking Ball. You see 2023 Flowers. About 10 years in between their first number one hit and their second number one hit. Look at Neil Sedaka, 1962 for Breaking Up is Hard to Do, 1974 for Laughter in the Rain. About 12 years. So we have two singers here, two songwriters who are comparable and did really well about a decade apart. Don't take your love. See, I got to give Don his moment there. I got to give Don his moment there. But let me just also point out that this was big for Miley Cyrus because she's just become considerably more popular over the last uh, five years. Take a look here at her net popularity score. It's now at plus eight. She's recovered when she was underwater back in April of 2019 at minus 13. And I just want to leave you sort of with a question here. Is social media enough to create a hit song? The days of TRL, Total Request Live, are long gone. Cyrus has done little traditional media to promote flowers, and she hasn't performed it anywhere live either. So the question is, do you really do need to do much promotion outside of TikTok these days? I give it to you guys to answer that question, because I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Uh, Miley's a little bit outside of my demo, but I love her. I, I love, love her. her. And I love her dad uh, as well. All right, thank you, Harry. Thank Appreciate you. it. Say uh, hi to Uncle Neil. I will. <laughs> We'll text them together. Uh, this just into CNN. The Labor Department just released fourth quarter GDP. That actually just means how much the economy grew. Yep. Chief business correspondent Christine Roman. It's the wrecking ball of economic statistics. Oh, it breaks down all the walls and tells you what's really happening in the engine of the American economy. You're welcome. I'm the Miley Cyrus of, uh, of economic statistics. <laughs> Not 2.7 percent GDP. A little bit lighter than the first reading, you guys. Uh, still, the consumer and inventory building at the end of the year. Causing the economy was was doing well, but a little less great than it was the first read. So we're watching that closely. You can see the beginning of the year is when we worried about a recession, but ending pretty strongly. And I also got the most recent jobless claims. These are the people filing for the first time ever for unemployment benefits. A pretty light 192,000. That's not very many. These have been below 200,000 for some time now. These are pre-pandemic, actually weaker than pre-pandemic levels. So you have this split-screen economy where. 
you know, you can't find workers. You don't have a lot of layoffs outside of tech. Um, but the consumer has really kind of held in there. So the Fed has more work to do, which then may slow the economy. So we're in a kind of critical moment here. So let me ask you, because I, I, what's up is down, down is up. I always say, well, so is this good or is this bad? What's usually good is bad now. What's usually bad is good. So what? You know what? I wish I could put it on a bumper sticker, mm. but you can't. I think it's confusing, and I think we're really trying to parse every single little number. The GDP number is a big number, by the way, just to see how well this economy is holding in. Mm -hmm. The consumer still remains strong, but we heard from the big box retailers this week, the CEOs. They're concerned that they might, might start to slow down later in the year. For now, things are fine. Job market's hot. That means the Fed still needs to keep raising interest rates, and that's where the worries come that they could accidentally tip the economy into recession sometime later this year. Okay. Miley Romans. I mean, Christine Romans. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. You know, Good her one. godmother is Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton is my favorite interview I've ever done. Yeah? She's amazing. I bet it. I'm sure. That is She's amazing. Humble yeah. brag. I'm um, Instagram texting buddies with her dad. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I sat next to Miley at a big event. We became fast friends. So there you go. You two are way cooler than me. I don't know why I'm me. saying that, but okay. yeah, it's cool. <laughs> Okay, up next, we got to get to this because it's this a really important guest here. We're going to speak to the NATO Secretary General, Jen Stoltenberg, there you see, as he nears one year since the war in Ukraine began. Those streaks that you're seeing up there in the sky, I don't know how we can see exactly right now. You can see more artillery rockets apparently be firing from Russian territory towards the territory, I would say, around Harkin. I don't know if you can hear this right now. That was our colleague Fred Plekton on the ground in Russia nearly one year ago, just hours after Moscow launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. That was on the 24th of February 2022. Over the past 12 months, Ukraine has withstood attacks from a much larger military force, rolled back initial gains, and held the line in hotly contested regions. But as the war hits its one-year mark, there is no end in sight as U.S. and NATO allies brace for Russia to intensify its assault on Ukraine. President Biden vowing to stand up to Russia's aggression, continuing that during a meeting with the leaders of NATO's eastern flank yesterday. Listen. The commitment of the United States to NATO, and I've said it to you many times, I'll say it again, is absolutely clear. Article 5 is a sacred commitment. United States has made, we will defend literally every inch of NATO, every inch of NATO. Important words for everyone to hear, especially NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg. Secretary General, thank you very much for your time this morning. And let's begin. Tomorrow it will be one year. And everyone across the West underestimated, including Russia, namely, underestimated what Ukraine could do in this war. Why do you think we got it so wrong and what are your thoughts as you reflect on one year? So President Putin fundamentally made two big strategic mistakes when he invaded uh, Ukraine. The first uh, and the most important was that he totally underestimated the strength, the courage, the bravery of the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian 
armed forces, but also of the Ukrainian political leadership, President Zelensky. And then they uh, underestimated uh, NATO, NATO allies and partners, our soul, our determination to support Ukraine and the US leadership in providing uh, unprecedented military support to Ukraine. And that's also the reason why the Ukrainians have been able to push back the Russian forces from the north in Kiev, in the east uh, Kharkiv and in the south Kherson. And now we just need to continue uh, to provide support to Ukraine so they can liberate their own territory, their own land. As we talk about what continuing support looks like, you said President Biden's visit to Kyiv sent a clear message of, quote, America's ironclad commitment to the security of Europe. I, I want your reaction to what the mayor of Kyiv told me earlier this week. Here he was. Do you believe that Ukraine can win this war without longer range missiles and without U.S. F-16 fighter jets? Uh, if this war stopped in this moment, we can tell it's enough. But right now, it's not enough. He says it's not enough to win. Do you agree? Can Ukraine actually win without F-16s and longer-range missiles from the U.S.? NATO allies and partners have provided uh, uh, a lot of different types of uh, weapons. And, of course, the types of weapons we have uh, provided, so delivered to Ukraine, has evolved as the war has evolved. We started with light anti-tank, uh, anti-aircraft uh, weapons, the javelins and the stingers. Then uh, uh, the focus was on, on artillery, then more long-range systems like the HIMARS, uh, then air defense systems, also advanced ones, and now uh, heavy armor, uh, infantry fighting vehicles, uh, the Bradleys, but also the, the main battle tanks. Uh, and of course, we will cons constantly consult and discuss uh, also with the Ukrainians about more types of weapons they need. But as important as discussing new types of weapons, new platforms, it is extremely important to ensure that all the systems that all they have work as they should, meaning that they need a lot of uh, ammunition, spare parts, maintenance, uh, to be able to sustain, for instance, the artillery. And the challenge now is that uh, the, the consumption of artillery shells is higher than our production. Uh, so far, we have uh, depleted our stocks, but this is not sustainable. So our main focus now is to ensure that we ramp up production, because this is now a war of attrition, which is a battle of logistics, and we need to supply the Ukrainians every day uh, with what they need to be able to uh, continue to make gains on the battlefield. Yes, but this is what Ukraine says it needs right now. So again, do you believe that Ukraine can win without those F-16s and longer-range missiles from the U.S.? As I said, we will continue to consult among allies and with Ukraine exactly on the specific uh, platforms. But uh, in those consultations with Ukraine, we also get a very clear message that it is extremely important that we uh, ensure that all the systems that are already there uh, have uh, uh, the, the, the sustainment they need. Uh, just the new battle tanks, which we are now uh, in the process of uh, deploying, will require a lot of support, uh, ammunition, fuel, maintenance to be able to operate. So, yes, we will continue to discuss and consult on new platforms. But I think what we, what we have seen is that uh, the Ukrainians have been able to make a significant progress in the north, in the east and in the south. And now we have added even more uh, weapons to that. Uh, we will do what is necessary. And a message from the meeting in Warsaw yesterday with President Biden, with the eastern uh, leaders of the eastern flank of the alliance, is that we will uh, step up and uh, 
and, uh, and sustain our support to, to Ukraine. You grew up, uh, Secretary General, after the Cold War. And as, as Prime Minister of Norway, you actually were able to manage a functioning, working relationship with Russia. I mean, considering that and now what Vladimir Putin just said about withdrawing from any cooperation of New START, a treaty which, by the way, expires in a thousand or so days and has no automatic ability to extend itself, which would mean a whole new treaty that has to be ratified by the U.S. Senate. How concerned are you and do you believe that that makes the world a more dangerous place? The announcement by Russia to suspend the new START agreement, which puts limits on the long-range strategic uh, uh, weapon systems, nuclear weapon systems, um, uh, is the latest example uh, of how Russia is walking away uh, from a meaningful dialogue with uh, NATO allies. Um, uh, we have seen also how they violated uh, the INF Treaty that banned all intermediate range uh, 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 weapons, uh, and also how they have uh, violated international rule uh, and law again and again. You are right. Also, I grew up uh, after uh, also after the end of the Cold War, and uh, and I, as a politician in Norway, uh, I engaged and worked with Russia, met President Putin many times, and we agreed on everything from delimitation lines in the Barents Sea and energy and and the environmental cooperation. But but with the invasion of Ukraine, uh, Russia has really totally walked away from this effort to uh, have a better and more constructive relationship with uh, uh, with Russia. Uh, and, and of course, we regret that, but that makes it even more important that we invest in our security, that we have the military presence of NATO allies, especially in the Eastern Party Alliance, to send a clear message to Moscow that we are there to uh, protect every uh, NATO ally. An attack on one will trigger a response uh, from the whole alliance, one for all, all for one. And this is credible deterrence. And the purpose is not to provoke a conflict, but to prevent yeah. a conflict, to prevent escalation of the war in Ukraine to a full-fledged war between Russia and NATO. NATO Secretary uh, Jen Stoltenberg, thank you very much as we mark one year tomorrow since the beginning of this war. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Tonight, 9 o'clock Eastern, you'll want to join our colleague Fried Zakaria. He hosts top Biden national security officials for a CNN town hall, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, one year later, Don. Twin sisters earning valedictorian and salutatorian at their New York high school. Now they're taking their classroom competition to college. The Morning Moment is next. Do you know what it's time for? The Morning Moment. We need to I use that. That, that well. should be the thing when it comes out of the break, the morning moment. <laughs> but so this is a great it story. It is time now for the morning moment. A pair of twin sisters. Actually, this is serious because they're great. A pair of twin sisters yeah. in New York have just been named valedictorian and salutatorian at West Hempstead Secondary School. For their four years in high school, Gloria and Victoria Grayer have been competing in the classroom, and it clearly paid off. Right? They're really smart. Gloria earned a grade point average of 105.3. That's out of 100. And Victoria reached 104.9. It's not the 4.0. They don't do that anymore. So the school says neither have ever received a grade lower than 100 on their transcripts. The twins say that they uh, motivated each other, right? When one got a better grade, it would push the other to get a higher score next time. The Grayer sisters are headed to none other than Yale University in the fall. They plan to study computer science. Bravo. 
all the hard work pays off. Amazing. But before we go, huge development. A source tells CNN Alex Murdoch is planning to testify today in his double murder trial, accused of killing his wife and son. CNN will have live coverage when court resumes at 9.30 Eastern so time. Stay huge. Tuned and we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Have a great day. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.